Empower Radio presents The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello, hello, and welcome, everyone. You're listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. I'm Julie Crawl. So happy you tuned in today. Hey, contemplative practice and compassionate action. If they're paired together, can they change the world? Can seeing with the eyes of the mystics really have relevance in our busy modern world today? Our guest today says yes. He says it's not only relevant, but absolutely necessary to change our level of consciousness. Through a regular practice of contemplation, we can awaken to the profound presence of the unitive spirit which then gives us the courage and capacity to face the paradox that is everything, ourselves included. He not only encourages the transformation of human consciousness through contemplation, but inspires and equips people to be instruments of peace and peaceful change in the world. I invite you to take a few deep breaths, bring your awareness into this moment, open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential self as I welcome my guest, Father Richard Rohr. He's a globally recognized ecumenical teacher bearing witness to the universal awakening within Christian mysticism and the perennial tradition. He is a Franciscan priest of the New Mexico province and founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Father Richard is the author of numerous books, and I love these titles. Just listening to the, the vibration of these titles just brings me so much peace. Listen to these. Oh, Everything you. Belongs, Adam's Return, The Naked Now, Breathing Underwater, Falling Upward, Immortal Diamond, and Eager to Love. Father Richard is Academic Dean of the Living School for Action and Contemplation. The mission of the Living School is to produce compassionate and powerfully learned individuals who will work for positive change in the world based on awareness of our common union with God and all beings. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, thank you, Father Richard. I'm so (laughs) happy to have you here today. Well, such an impressive introduction. I want to hear this guy. (laughs) I hope he talks as well as he sounds, but thank you. Thank you. Well, you know what? I know that you talk as well as you sound, and I've, (laughs) I've heard you via video, I wish live, and your writing is so poetic. So, I know that that some of that sweet nectar will just spill over to the radio waves today. (laughs) Well, let's hope so. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. I have a tradition here on the Dr. Julie Show, um, Father Richard. So I want to start with our our perennial question that we like to set this whole conversation in a meme. So I'm going to start with my first question. What does all things connected mean to you? Gosh, that's almost a paraphrase for what I would call unitive consciousness, uh, what I would call, what Jesus would have called the reign of God or the kingdom of God. And you know, believe it or not, even though the word got corrupted, it was why already in the second and third century, the Christian people called themselves Catholic. 
It didn't at that time mean Roman Catholic. <laughs> it meant, as the word uh, in its etymology does, universal, all things connected. And that they saw themselves as, at that point, not a tribal religion, but a universal possibility. And um, it's a shame that we lost that. So I love your title. Mm. Thank you. I I love that explanation. That that was enlightening, and and I love that that it's universal and a universal potential. And it is time to reclaim that. Shall we bring that back? You know, it, it really is. We, uh, you know, you mentioned me on consciousness before. I, I think we have moved, especially in the last fifty years, all over this planet, on beyond tribal thinking. Now, the more that we do that. The more there is uh, our groups circling the wagons, trying to defend their smaller uh, tribal groupings, but uh, I, I don't think we can give in to that. <laughs> Either we learn to love and respect everybody, or we really don't love and respect anybody. And um, I think the Spirit is calling us to that level of connection, communion. Uh, it, it's almost impossible that we haven't realized that, <laughs> that we thought little tribes, each trying to prove they had the whole truth, could ever save the world. Huh? And so I love your title very much. Thank you. Mm, thank you. Well, and I love the title of your books, like I mentioned, and um, the one that's really been calling me, and I, and I just have to say, um, when you and I corresponded via email, and I said, I want to talk about your latest book and you go, which one? Cause you are just really doing a lot of publishing and putting out a lot of books and two <laughs> just embarrassing. came out. It's embarrassing. Oh my gosh. That's so, the fruit of old age. I'm 72 and a half. So, you know, by this age, a, a lot of it comes together and it comes very easily by the grace of God. But thank you. Mm, oh, thank you. And thank you for, for sharing what the, the wisdom that you do pour out upon these pages. I have both of the most recent ones right in front of me, Eager to Love, which I love. I love St. Francis of Assisi, oh, and, and we're talking about that. But I really wanted to talk about what the mystics know, okay. um, seven pathways to your deeper self. And I, I pick that because there are, it, for number one, for anyone to pick this book up, there they will easily easily just rest in the awareness of the message that you're trying to get across oh, by just that reading. makes me happy i hope so oh hey. yeah they, they can <laughs> read a, a paragraph it, it is just so well written and with incredible nuggets but let's start by maybe talking to our listeners first about let's define what is a mystic and then what do the mystics know you know, that I'd probably try to describe better in the Eager to Love book, even though the other one is specifically about mysticism. And the way I define it, I don't think it's oversimplified, is experiential knowledge of the divine. Not just book knowledge, not just seminary knowledge, not just church dogmas, but where you can say at some humble, calm, dear level, I know. I, I calmly know this. Uh, that's mysticism. And in that sense, I think there's a little mystic in all of us. <laughs> but uh, most of the mainline traditions have not given their people encouragement or permission 
to trust their inner experience. Uh, we Catholics were told to trust the bishops and the popes, you know, and Protestants were told to trust the Bible. Um, and that's fine, but it leaves a very grounding element out, and that is inner experience of the same. And that changes everything. So that, for me, is mysticism. I love that. I don't remember where I heard this or if I thought of it on my own, <laughs> but I think I heard this somewhere, and I can't remember where, but um, defining theology as thinking about God and mysticism as experiencing God. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's Isn't that what lovely? I'm trying to say. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there's nothing love- wrong with thinking about God, but when people think about God, talk about God who've never had any unitive experience, uh, their thinking is going to be pretty superficial. All they can do is quote cliches and secondhand knowledge of other people. Mm. Yeah, and that's what makes this conversation so important. Because what what I really appreciate about you, Father Richard, and your your body of work here that's that's coming out in these books is really a almost a practical application of this really a, a simple good, good. ordinary practice of yeah. mysticism. Yeah. Well thank you for using the word simple. That's very close to my Franciscan heart. Uh, you know Whoever God is, and God will always be mystery to, to the most brilliant theologian, God has to, in the end, be what Einstein said about the universe. He said, remember, whenever he found his final explanation, he knew it was going to be both simple and beautiful. What a premonition. <laughs> and I would mm-hmm. say the same thing about whoever God is. Uh, our explanation has to be simple. Our understanding will be very simple so that the most simple person can comprehend it. And you don't need to go off to a a university to know God. Mm. Well, thank you. So I really, I'm like in this place of I just want to jump in and do this, but I want to put this again back into this bigger picture because when you're writing this, The Seven Pathways to Your Deeper Self, you also really introduced the book, um, which is how I introduced the show, that really contemplative practice and compassionate action can really change how we perceive the world, how we are in the world, um, how we treat others in the world. And, and you're really bringing in that unitive yeah. consciousness, that unitive spirit. Let's talk about that for the world. How, how does that make a difference in our world? Well, you know, I think it's the only thing that makes enduring difference. You can have momentary change. You know, changed people change people. And people who are transformed themselves become not just a a verbal message, but a living model. And that excites every part of sincere seekers. Uh, We saw it in people like Nelson Mandela. You know, these people who... They don't just say words, but somehow they exemplify what they're talking about. This weekend here in New Mexico, we're having our huge summer conference 
over 900 people are coming, and it's, it's called the Francis Factor, just the excitement of the world right now about Pope Francis, because he has become, apart from being Pope, although that, that gave him the universal visibility, but just a very believable prime attractor, as some people call them. Archetypal people who tell us by their very being that it's possible to be compassionate. It's possible to care about justice and the poor and still do it in a kind way. When I moved here to Albuquerque 29 years ago, that was the reason for founding the Center for Action and Contemplation. Because I had met on the road my first 15 years so many people, wonderful people, who were working for social change, all the contemporary issues all around the world. But i got to be honest, again and again, they felt like ideologues uh, uh, more than lovers. They felt like uh, uh, sometimes angry people and, and things that deserved anger. I can understand that. But the trouble is they didn't become a prime attractor themselves. The, the medium was not the message, if you follow me. Mm-hmm. So that's why I founded the center, to put those two things together. And I thank you for honing in on them right at the beginning. Because when, when you see people who are awakened inside, but also engaged outside, I think you have a full human being. And too often, those have been two different groups. There's been the inner people, the church people, the spiritual people, so-called, and there have been the social activists. Uh, and the two often didn't meet. So we're trying to get them to meet. Mm. Well, and even even more fully integrating the two, I love that, the enlightened inside, it, it almost becomes the engaged outside. It becomes the same thing. When I read your words, that's how I'm inspired. It's like, it's got to be the same thing now. Very good. Very good. You almost don't have to be an activist per se. It's just the way you frame questions and the way you address issues is in a larger frame, you know, that, that doesn't ignore the social injustice, the, the shadow side of of our country or of any institution. And um, that's a different way of thinking mm. uh, without being an angry, alienated person. Do you understand? That's the key. Absolutely. You yeah. know, I think that, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, that, that angry, alienated person, we've had activists no, on our planet for decades. You know, yeah. we've had people fighting yeah. for peace, but again, we're fighting. Yeah, that's it. it's still oppositional energy, which is the dualistic mind, which is the opposite of contemplation. So that allows me to focus right in on the heart of contemplation. Contemplation, the contemplative mind, is when you stop seeing things in pairs and oppositional, like our, our present government in America. It's just an embarrassment to the rest of the world that people cannot see in any kind of integrated synthetic way but everything is republican versus democrat it just it makes you want to cry Mm. i really appreciate that definition of the contemplative as the opposite of the opposing that's 
I've never yep. heard it spoke that way before, but it makes perfect sense it, to it me. It really does. And it took me a long time to come to that, that that's what it comes down to, that you don't read reality dualistically. My book, The Naked Now, which you mentioned at the beginning, that's largely about that very point, if you want to pursue it further. Mm, okay. So, okay, so this is really good because we're setting this contemplative practice, more even a contemplative being, in with uh -huh. this engaged outside. But part of what you were talking about in the book and, and what the mystics know um, and maybe we could just go through some of these chapters is one of them, the enlightenment you seek already dwells within you. Tell our listeners what that means. Well, I'm going to use Christian language, first of all, so people don't think I'm coming from some far off place. Uh, I'm trained in Orthodox Catholic theology. But the trouble is that so many of us who are trained in one tradition try to pull everything inside of our language. But I'm willing to start with that language. So our word for that is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Or the in and we didn't emphasize the indwelling Holy Spirit. It was always the Holy Spirit was out there in the heavens, and we'd raise our hands as good Pentecostals do and say, come Holy Spirit, implying the Spirit is elsewhere. And it's very clear in Paul's letters, in John's Gospel, that the Holy Spirit is within you. Uh, and that, that changes everything. Once the source is within, then the discovery of your deepest self, what I call your true self, is almost simultaneously the discovery of God. And the discovery of God is always a deeper, deeper delving into your own depth. They proceed forward in parallel fashion. So it's, it's, it's God within you that seeks God. It's God within you that already knows God, loves God. You don't know how to love God. You don't know where to look. <laughs> I don't know where to look. But when I trust this deep in love place inside of me, and I allow it to bubble up, uh, many philosophers have said, you can only seek something if you've already, in part, experienced it. And that's all I'm saying, that there is a part of you that already knows God, loves God, uh, is the presence of God in the world, and that's the part of you that you have to learn to trust. So that's why saints invariably have what we would now call a positive self-image. They have a, an inherent sense of dignity. I love to tell people, you know, if you, if you hear the message, I'm saving you $20,000 in therapy. <laughs> All hmm. the identity questions that, that we human beings struggle for. Who am I and what makes me special and what makes me important? I think true religion, healthy religion, healthy Christianity, too, answers that question for you right at the beginning. Now, what you're seeking, you in fact already have. And just to add one, you know, ancient Hinduism, in the text 1,500 years before Christ, like the Gita, they were already saying that. <laughs> this is not a, an original 
understanding of Jesus. It's uh, the perennial tradition that discovers it again and again and again. I love that, and it just makes me relax and just I know. I know. opens. Yeah, I love that. How did we get so I know. fear-based in our culture? We have, a, oh, heretic, you're, you know, this is heresy. You, you can't have the God within that doesn't, know. you know, how did we get there? How did we get so far well, off that Well, uh, it's funny. I just I was teaching a group of five women this morning from Texas, and they asked almost that exact same thing that you just said. How did we miss the boat so much? Well, I think the um, evolving of the, the Christian gospel already began in, in 313, when we aligned ourselves with the Roman Empire and became the official religion of the West. We needed a God that people could salute. <laughs> we wanted an imperial God. We wanted a God who was uh, a big king. <laughs> this is no indwelling Holy Spirit anymore. This is a God who has to be bowed to, worshipped. Uh, you know, any God that is totally other alienates totally. And it, it's alienated Western man today that has little inherent sense of his dignity. But starting in 313, in our alignment with money and war and power in much of our history, I don't think we had much interest, to be perfectly honest. I hope this doesn't sound unkind, but I don't think we had much interest in the soul, in the interior of a person. We needed a collective religion that would keep Europe together, you understand? <laughs> that would keep your Italian identity, your German identity, your French identity, your Spanish identity uh, together. And... So we've been on that path much of the last 1,700 years. Now, there were always people, like my father, St. Francis, who broke out of it. But they were usually marginalized. You know, we called them Saint, St. Francis. (laughs) But we didn't really take them too seriously. And the wonderful thing that's happening now in the globalization of knowledge, the globalization of awareness, is that more and more people are getting touch, getting in touch with the perennial tradition, and if you're Christian, are it's helping them to reform their own Christianity to get back to the essentials. Mm. Father Richard, this voice is so important in our world today. People need to feel this. I know it. It really is. I just, you know, I was jail chaplain here in Albuquerque for 14 years. And I used to come home feeling so helpless. And uh, because every young man, young woman, too, in jail, without exception, always was dealing with, a, in one form or another, a negative self image, you know, that they didn't think they were any good. Uh, They hated themselves, uh, often victims of abuse of various kinds. And so all I could really do in the jail was keep affirming for them who they objectively were and to start trusting that and building on that. Uh, It was probably a minority who really heard me, but those who did 
are the ones who aren't in jail anymore. I can say that. Mm. So you're right. Uh, it is. And as, as such, this isn't a religious message. It's, it's just a life message, a human message. I think Jesus came not to make us, you know, uh, first of all, into gods, but make us, first of all, into ordinary, lovable human beings. And when you discover that, you also discover that you're a, a son and daughter of God, too. Mm. But we were so interested in getting people into a heaven later, I'm afraid we didn't spend much time uh, helping people experience heaven now in their own humanity, in their own soul, in their own acts of love and service toward one another. Mm. Beautiful. See, there you go again. I told you that your words would be just as poetic as your writing, and, <laughs> and I'm just, you're lulling me into this beautiful place. Well, that says more about you than me. Thank you for your, <laughs> your readiness gonna, of spirit. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. We're going to take a break, but I want to make sure our listeners know how to find you and the Center for Action and Contemplation. So what website would might they go to to find more you about know, it's you? it's really easy. Center for Action and Contemplation, CAC.org. CAC.org. Excellent. Okay, yeah. we're going to take a quick break. More when we come back. We have six more paths to talk about. So we're here with <laughs> we got Father a lot of Richard work to Rohr do. and with the Mystics <laughs> Know. We'll be right back. Okay. I'm home and I love it. I'm home where I belong. I'm home, and I love it. I'm home, where I belong. It's always nice to come home. But these days, many Americans are at risk of foreclosure and losing their homes. Fortunately, help is available. Making Home Affordable is a free program from the U.S. government that has already helped over a million struggling homeowners, and we want to help you. I'm home. And I love it, I'm home. I'm home. Find out but now what your options are. Go to makinghomeaffordable.gov or call 1-888-995-HOPE. The sooner you act, the better chance we can help you. I'm home. I'm home. Where I be Brought to you by the U.S. Treasury, HUD, and the Ad Council. Sassy! Sassy! This week's episode, Danger at the Old Well. Last one to the old well's a rotten egg. Ha ha, I win. Whoa! Ah! Sassy! Johnny fell down the well. I'm wet. What, Sassy? You know where Mr. Gunderson keeps his rope? Go get it, girl. What? You'd rather use his time to set people straight about shelter pet adoption? I'm cold. People shouldn't be afraid to adopt from a shelter? Because shelter pets are screened for sound health and temperament? I'm wet and cold! Sassy, what about Johnny? <laughs> what? Let Johnny sit in the well until he learns to be more self-reliant? Sassy! What did he say? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt! Have you ever lost a cat? And have you ever wanted to get your cat back after you lost it? Hi there, I'm Andrew Hoffman. I went on this website called inventnow.org. 
Then I decided to make an invention of my own. It's called the Lost Cat Magnet Invention. So you can get your cat back after you lost it. Just turn it on and lost cats stick to it. That's a good cat. If your cat was hiding up in a tree, it won't be up a tree anymore. It will be stuck to the lost cat magnet. And sometimes they fly toward you in the air. Just listen to one satisfied cat. See, that's proof. You should go to the inventnow.org website too. But just remember one thing. Don't do a lost cat magnet. Anything's possible. Keep thinking. Get started on your own inventions or just play some games at inventnow.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, the National Inventors Hall of Fame Foundation, and the Ad Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. We're back on the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected, and I'm Julie Kroll. My guest today is Father Richard Rohr, author of multiple books, but we're talking about what the mystics know. If you enjoy what you're listening to and want to go back and re-listen and look for the archives, please visit our website, and that is thedrjulieshow.com. You can find all the archives for all of our shows there, as well as all the upcoming guests. We have some terrific shows coming up this fall. I'm looking forward to many weeks of, of incredible shows coming up. So again, that's thedrjulieshow.com. And this one is already one of my favorites. So also stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie. And then visit Father Richard at Center for Action and Contemplation at CA. C.org. Father Richard, uh, again, there's so much wisdom in your your writings over over the decades, but this book kind of synthesizes and brings in many of the writings that you've had in, and puts it into really seven nice pathways that we're talking about. And the next one that the next chapter that I just want to bring up is God is found in imperfection. Let's talk about that for a minute. I'd love to. <laughs> you know, this builds on what I was trying to say before, how we we created an, an imperial religion. And by that, I mean it was upward bound. It was climbing, achieving, because that made sense to uh, the Western mind. It was sort of a form of spiritual capitalism, that we'd come to God by doing it right, by performing, by good behavior, and so forth. Uh, what happened, frankly, is a very large percentage of people just gave up on it. When they realized they couldn't be spiritually heroic or perfect, they, they didn't even try. And so I love to call the gospel a spirituality of imperfection. I know a lot of 12-step people use that same term, for the 12-step program, and I think they're right, that we come to God not by doing it right, but surprise of surprises, we come to God by doing it wrong. I, I've been a priest 45 years. I've worked with so many people, and that's obvious. <laughs> it, it's hidden in plain sight that the real spirituality that works begins, as the 12-steppers say, with an experience of powerlessness. And that makes you discover, fall into your actual power. Mm. You know, the, so in your book, what you do is you have these little nuggets 
that are easily re readable, like I mentioned. And, and in each chapter, it, it really is a contemplative practice all on its own. It's like this meditative space where you can go into that. And, and you not only bring in the wisdom of the traditional mystics that we talk about in the Catholic Church, but just this everyday life. So I love how you, you bring up the 12-step program. Because again, there's a mystical practice for everyday people to yes. just fully move into our imperfections. Yes, uh -huh. which is the only kind of human being there is, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, perfection is a mathematical concept or a divine concept, but not a human concept. And, and uh, we didn't help people by sending them on an impossible path. Yeah. But yeah, I try to use whatever tools I can. My book, Breathing Underwater, is the book uh, particularly on the wisdom of the 12 steps and, and the gospel. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So the third pathway that you talk about is from profound suffering comes great wisdom and joy. That pathway a lot of people, and I remember a pastor saying that to me once, that all mystics come through great suffering. And, you know, I don't know if that's an absolute black and white truth, but from suffering can come that connectedness with all things and, and a great joy. So you want to talk about that one for a minute? Sure. <laughs> it has to be talked about because everything in our ego self wants to deny it, wants to run from it, wants to say, that doesn't have to be true. But let me first of all give you my definition of suffering. Suffering is whenever you are not in control. Mm. And it, you're, you're suffering whenever you're not getting your own way. <laughs> and that has to happen to the small self, the egocentric self, or we will never give up control to our original, our larger source. And uh, if there were a better way, I think the saints and mystics would have discovered it. But suffering is the only thing that forces up us to give up control. Uh, and I don't mean necessarily lying on a bed of pain in chronic, uh, you know, fatigue or something like that, but just the, the little sufferings every day, like like being stopped at a red light when I'm when I want to get over there. That's suffering. Now, when you can stop at that red light and say to yourself and mean it, this moment is as perfect as it can be. God is on this side of the street. I'm happy on this side of the street. You've just had a little experience of salvation, of, of unitive consciousness. But it's always not getting your own way that forces you to that realization. Mm. I, I see few people walk into it just by book knowledge or, or uh, having a, a dogmatic opinion about this or that. We've let Christians get away with having dogmatic opinions about all kinds of things, and they're still control freaks. Let me pull it together this way. For me, Julie, the opposite 
of faith is not doubt. Doubt is necessary to grow in faith. The opposite of faith is control. People who are obsessed with controlling everybody and everything, they never go very far in the ways of of spirit. Never. Because they're steering their own boat. They're steering their own ship. And um, that leaves them very much disconnected to build on your wonderful program title. You know, that that's a beautiful example because as a psychologist, I talk about unitive consciousness in the same way that Good. you are and suffering in that same way. Because when we, when we really talk about suffering and we see ourselves as separate, it's, it's that control and that separation and fear that move in that are creating the suffering. And then when we can just relax into that unitive consciousness, the salvation going, Oh yeah, everything's okay in this moment. There's no more suffering. It's, it's so simple that it's hard to teach because the ego does not like that truth. (laughs) The ego wants two things, Julie. It wants to be separate and it wants to be superior. And that's what Jesus meant. Unless you lose yourself, the ego self, You'll never find yourself, because that separate, superior, Richard self, in my case, uh, that can't get you very far. It's too fragile, it's too insecure, it's too needy. Uh, It's not the great self, it's not the God self. Mm. I love that. I love that. And, And what a surprise to have you talk about the suffering in that place of control and disconnection. I, I love how you tie that together. So that's an easy way to teach it. Thank you for that gift. But let me Thank tell you. you something, Julie. I say it better than I live it. <laughs> I, know, I know it's true, but I might this very afternoon be stopped at a red light and just sit there irritated. So I live it half the time, but oh. that's enough. That's enough to get the point. Well, that... That brings us right to the next one because it's a fun little intro to the mystical oh. path is a celebration of paradox. Yes, talk yes, about yes. that one. Can you, you know, talk about that uh, one with us? See, dualistic thinking, which is the normal thinking that Western people have that sees everything in pairs and always oppositionally, uh, it has no patience with paradox. And yet, now I'm just going to speak as a Christian, but you can apply this to whatever your historic religion might be. If you look at all of the major doctrines, dogmatic truths of Christianity, every single one of them is a paradox. Jesus is fully human and fully divine at the same time. Right? Now, normally, that would those would contra- contradict one another, cancel one another out, you know? Uh we Catholics, we said Mary was both virgin and mother. Well, normally those contradict one another. We say, nope, Mary's both at the same time. Uh, the Trinity, God is one and yet three. I mean, that, that's gobbledygook, I think, <laughs> mathematically speaking. But in other words, healthy religion, mature religion, is is. Ph.D. training in dealing with paradoxical thinking. 
And the reason we've so murdered the Bible and used it to oppress other people, I think, is because we didn't know how to understand the, the, the paradoxical way Jesus is teaching almost all the time. Most of his parables, most of his one-liners, the last will be first, the first will be last. They're like Zen koans, you know, giving you things that, frankly, you don't understand, you're not sure you agree with. And I guess what most Christians do is just read them and forget them. <laughs> because without the contemplative mind, you cannot hold paradoxes, two sides of a truth, and allow them both to be true. Mm. Uh, and as I said, I, I'm not saying something way out or something new agey or, or trendy. I just refer you to the, the several doctrines of uh, the humanity and divinity of Christ, uh, the oneness and threeness of God. Uh, we, we should have been experts in paradoxical thinking. But instead, we became literalists. You know, literalism is the least fruitful level of understanding something. It's the least fraught with meaning. Uh, literalism uh, doesn't ask very much of you to believe this happened on this day in this place exactly that way, which is what fundamentalist Christians waste time proving, and it doesn't convert the soul at all. But you deal with the paradoxical truth that Jesus is constantly presenting and struggle with it and sit there in the struggle. Let it, let it conflict you. Then, and then only, do you move to higher levels of consciousness? Do you move to what I would call holiness, where God alone understands, and you never perfectly understand anything? If you'd be honest, you partially understand, but not perfectly. So that kind of humility around ideas and people and things, that for me is... Uh, a tolerance for ambiguity. It's, it's paradoxical thinking. Mm. You know, listening to you, Father Richard, you invite us um, in, a, in a very safe and resonant space to just be in the mystery. And I really love that about you. And the other thing that I really oh, appreciate so about kind. your words Thank here you. <laughs> is you. that you are also bringing in the history of the church, of the faith, and, and maybe where we haven't done so well, in a way that's not a judgment or that literal black and white of it's bad, it's wrong, but it's just in helping to evolve the message, helping to evolve the consciousness and, and moving us into this integration of our interior space and that engaged outside world space so so thank you for doing that because it's really easy to hear your message well thank you if it brings you closer to love to god then that's all i want to do mm. and it's worth it but thank you for being so humble and so trustful mm. yeah and so again again this leads us right into that fifth pathway of contemplation means practicing heaven now. 
<laughs> Let's talk about that one. Well, as I alluded quickly before, uh, I'm quoting Brian McLaren when I say this. He said, we made uh, the gospel into an evacuation plan for the next world. <laughs> Once we pushed it all off into a reward-punishment system that happened later, instead of quite simply naming reality now, there is heaven, there is hell, choose heaven. Even, you know, the very conservative previous pope, Pope John Paul II, he said in a general audience already in 1999, he said, when will Catholics realize that heaven and hell, now this is a pope, so don't call me a heretic. Right? He said, <laughs> when will Catholics realize that heaven and hell are not geographical places, they're states of consciousness, right? They're primarily now. now. I'm not denying eternal life. Don't go there. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, it, I'll quote a saint, St. Catherine of Siena. St. Catherine of Siena said, it's heaven all the way to heaven, and it's hell all the way to hell. And uh, in other words, as you quoted me right there at the beginning, heaven is primarily now. And if you if you're choosing love and union and forgiveness and freedom for yourself and others now, that tells me that's who you want to be forever. <laughs> um, no one, as many of our saints said, no one's going to be surprised. Um, I think God is going to give each of us exactly what we want. And if you want love and union, you'll have it. But you make that clear by the choices you're making right now. Mm. So then the gospel is not an evacuation plan for the next world, which is almost harmless in terms of transforming people. It's allowed centuries of Christians to deny that they were basically operating out of Disguise self-interest. It was just delayed gratification. You know, it doesn't take a lot of love or a lot of freedom to want to go to heaven later. It's just delayed gratification. But to choose love now, in the middle of people who often are not very loving, uh, that tells me you want love. Mm. See, I just want to rest and breathe that one in. It's so beautiful. And, you know, Father Richard, when I'm, when I'm listening to you I, and I, I get that feeling of, of hope and just that understanding, how do we bring this, um, this consciousness to the masses, to the greater general public? How can we bring this out when the church isn't delivering it or hasn't done a a superb job delivering it. How can we do that now? What's your vision for this? Let me give you what might seem like just a paradigm, but it's rather simple, and I think you can hold on to it. I want you to picture three boxes. The first is order. The second is disorder. And the third is reorder. Now, what conservative people want to do is simply keep maintaining the initial order. 
you know, uh, keep the world as I like it, as I have explained it, in some kind of idealized order. It, it never can work. It can't happen, which is why they so often become angry. Liberal, sophisticated, often educated people, they get trapped in the second box, disorder. They discover tragedy, absurdity, this doesn't work, that doesn't work, that person is handicapped, this person is gay, this person is in a second marriage. Life isn't as perfect as they thought it was supposed to be. So they just become cynics. These are the people leaving uh, religion en masse. It's all phony, it's all hypocrisy, it's all... And, of course, they've discovered the second box. They're, they're half right, but they're also half wrong. The goal is to get people to what I call the third box. And there's no nonstop flight from the first to the third. <laughs> uh, by maintaining perfect order, I can fly to this reordered, resurrected life. Our word for that would be resurrection. You have to go through tragedy, absurdity, failure, humiliation, your little salvation project, as Thomas Merton called it, has to disappoint you. And it will. It always does. If you're honest. A lot of people aren't honest. So basically what I'm doing as a spiritual director and as a teacher is helping people to trust the first box. Yeah, you've got to build your container of life. But it's going to take even more faith and more courage to trust the second one. And it's going to take the most courage to not get trapped in the second one and allow God to reframe your life on a whole new level that now includes tragedy, failure, sin. That's what I mean by the resurrected life. So uh, just repeat, and I'll stop. I know this was more an answer than you wanted probably, but conservatives get trapped in the first box. Liberals get trapped in the second box. And it's, it's only transformed, graced, enlightened people who stay on the journey, including what they learned in the first, not forgetting the painful wisdom of the second, but now living in an enlightened, happy existence in the reordered universe of resurrected life. That's, I'm afraid, a minority. But I hope stating it in that sort of paradigmatic way gives some people direction and hope. Well, I do believe that can give direction and hope. I really appreciate that. You you just kind of like synthesized our entire conversation, you know, talking about the non-duality and unitive consciousness consciousness and the, and the paradoxical pieces and, and held it out there so people can go, it's not order or disorder, it's all oh. of the above. It's the yeah. reorder of both. And, and let me add to that so again people don't think this is some new psychology or something. That's what Paul means by the folly of the cross, is that second box. And that's why most people stumble over the cross, they will not accept disorder or they throw out the baby with the bathwater when they discover that reality has a cruciform shape to it. 
It's wounded. It's imperfect. It's broken. It's poor. And that's what God loves. So uh, for those of you who are Christians and listening, I think that's what it means that we're saved by the cross. This isn't some act of transcendental magic on Jesus' part. It's simply naming how reality works. And if you can accept the, the folly of the cross, as Paul puts it, you won't get trapped in the second box, nor will you avoid it trying to stay in some pious, pure, perfect first box. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, oh, and good, the thing, good. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. The thing that I'd love to is introducing this choice piece. It's like we can choose to be stuck in the first box or we could choose to avoid the second box or we could choose to just surrender in the second box. We can choose to get stuck in the second box. Yeah. But you're introducing us to choice here that this is this is very prescriptive for yeah, it, that well, good. Thank you. life. And uh, Julie, this is much of sophisticated, educated America is trapped in the second box, you know, uh, just cynical about everything. <laughs> this is not going to save the world. This is not a transformed person. And that's why I, I, I've been known that I criticize liberals as much as conservatives. It's just two different entrapments. And the true resurrected life is neither liberal nor conservative. It's got profound elements of both. Mm. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for, I mean, moving this into this whole and holy picture, perspective of the world, even talking politics here, because when we can fully integrate these concepts, we're going to be so much more effective in just in life in general, but in really helping others who are stuck in that suffering or stuck in that, you know, one place or the other. So thank yes, you for that. Yes, well, thank you for hearing that. You've obviously done your own work or you couldn't stay with me the way you are staying with me. Thank you. Oh, yeah, thank you. So we only have a couple minutes left here, and I just, I'm curious, what's your vision for the future? Do you have a positive vision for the future? Where are we going and how are we going to get there? You know, I, I have to be optimistic because I'm a Christian, and I believe that if Jesus is the course of his life is the course of humanity, that he is a paradigmatic pattern, as Carl Jung called the life of Jesus. It's the paradigm for what we must all go through. Well, we all know how it ends. It ends with resurrection and ascension, that we come forth from God, we go through our trials and purification, and we return where we started. So as a, as a theologian, as a believer, as a Christian, I have to be an optimist. And I think that has pervaded my, my deepest self. But I have to admit, my, my other self, which shows itself constantly, I have to fight the voices of cynicism and anger every day. Uh, when I see what we're doing to the earth, what religion is doing, the time it wastes on silly things. Uh, so to just look at look at it practically, uh, I'm not real hopeful. <laughs> but to look at it theologically, spiritually, I'm extremely hopeful. 
So I, I guess I live my life somewhere in between those two, um, trying to let the the Christ self, the God self, win out. But it only wins out by by um, going into the absurdity and tragedy of of I mean the nightly news. Just watch the nightly news every night. It just I just want to cry some nights. Well, you, there you are, holding the paradox yeah. and and being right there. So, Father Richard, I wish I had many more hours. This has been delightful. I really appreciate you being with us today. Well, you're a delight, and I thank you for leading me forward. We didn't get to the last two, but they don't need the last two. We hit upon plenty of uh, hopefully helpful stuff. Yeah, lots of really good stuff. Thank you all for tuning in today. And thank you again, Father Richard Rohr. You've been listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. We'll see you next week.